Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. I am Boris Karpa, and we have with us today a guest who has appeared on our show before. It's Brett Friedman, and he's with us today to talk about On Operations, Operational Art and Military Disciplines. Hello, Brett. I'm happy to glad to have you here with us again. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be on the show again. And, you know, uh, we, you know, we are creatures of tradition here, you know, much and like in uh, the Fiddler on the Roof in the same way. And one of the traditions we have, we always ask this question, why have you chosen the subject for your book? What has led you to it? Well, uh, I, I wrote my first book uh, on tactics and I focused on um, the modern and you know, tactics across time and how they work. Uh, and uh, wrote that book uh, for an audience of junior officers and COs to try to put some context in theory in an accessible way uh, so that they can look at it. And one of the issues I tackled in a chapter in that book uh, was the operational level of war and how they should be approached from their level. Uh, in the course of that uh, research for that chapter, uh, I... I really focused on whether it existed or not, because that is a debate that's been going on since before I even started writing, uh, before I was even in the military at all. Um, so I mentioned that a little bit, uh, and after the book came out and I was thinking about, uh, getting started on the next one in the series, uh, I thought there was still more I could say on that point. Uh, so I started doing some more research, uh, focused on operational stuff, uh, the things that military staffs do, and uh, that became, that ballooned uh, into a subject big enough that I thought I could do an entire book on it. Um, so that's what I did. That uh, was, um, I already had a, you know, a, a relationship with a publisher. Uh, I already had one book in a planned two book series, and it was pretty easy to just say, hey, this is now a three-book series instead. Well, I'd just like to move on from this a little bit, and we have a bit of a special audience to have on this show because, you know, because it is a new books network, and, of course, a lot of the people who are listening to us have their own ambitions as writers. Some of them are historians, some of them are, you know, in military science in another field. And so I, I always ask, and I would like to ask you, uh, as I did in the previous show, can you tell us about your experience writing the book, um, some of the challenges which you faced, you know, how you dealt with them? Uh, yeah, the the biggest challenge for me uh, as an independent scholar was that uh, writing this book was not my day job. Uh, so like, like anyone who writes a book, time was the biggest hurdle. Uh, I had to do my normal job eight hours a day five days a week and in my off time i had to work on this personal passion project um so that was 
that was the biggest hurdle for me, making sure the research uh, was available to me first as an independent scholar. Uh, had to spend a lot of my own money on books. Um, and then making sure the time was available for me to synthesize all that research and uh, turn it into something readable and something accessible. Um, so really, uh, work-life balance uh, definitely takes a hit when you're an independent scholar and you have to do this in your free time. Um, but uh, you know, I basically managed that by not putting any arbitrary deadlines on myself. So, you know, I've got to get this done in six months. I've got to get this done in a year. I just work on it until it's done. And I don't try to hurry myself along. Uh, so that was my biggest hurdle, work-life balance and uh, managing to put a book together in my free time. So just out of curiosity, how, how, long, do you, how long did it take for you to get it done? Um, it was, I think it was about a year and a half to two years from conceptualizing the research and um, going back through everything writing the first draft, finding out that, uh, much like my first book, that it was too short and having to add on a little bit more and do a little bit more research, go back to that phase and keep going until I had, you know, a cohesive manuscript. And then after that, it went to the publisher and that's another, that was another nine month process of, uh, lining up a copy editor, getting it peer reviewed, uh, things like that. And then finally, uh, getting the book uh, actually produced and printed. Fine. Actually fairly impressive, I would say, for somebody who has to, you know, deal with all of these constraints. And But I'd like to, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, the main idea of the book, which is, you know, fairly controversial as an idea, uh, because you've argued... Mm, you, it's essentially a, a criticism of you know the of the operational level of war as a concept, mm -hmm. you know, pu putting it uh, 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 perhaps you know if I would uh, that that's how I understood the book. You're free to tell me that I got it wrong. I don't know, even though rejecting that this is a, an actual separate level from the other two, from strategic and tactical. Can you explain a bit to the audience what you mean by this criticism of the operational level of war? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the premise is the book that, is that the operational level of war does not exist because um, it never really did. Uh, there's the big argument for the U.S. adoption of, uh, and this is a very U.S.-focused book, um, the, the main argument for the adoption of the operational level of war was that the Soviet Union was using the operational level of war and uh, the U.S. military in the late 70s and early 80s might fall behind the curve of uh, modern military thought because the Soviets were using this level and it did not exist in U.S. doctrine or U.S. thought at the time. Of course, in the in the course of doing the research for this book, I discovered that the Soviets actually were not using an operational level of war, anything like we would recognize. Um, there was a misinterpretation of Soviet doctrine at the time. Uh, this was talked about by the writers that were tasked with putting this together. Uh, they have since come out and said that they got the idea wrong. They misinterpreted the data and kind of repudiated it. Um, but this was not did not go noticed at the time uh 
one of the lead writer actually wrote an entire article saying, hey, we got this wrong. It wasn't really what the Soviets were talking about. They were talking about something else. Um, so we should probably rethink it. And that re that process of rethinking whether we want to base U.S. doctrine on a mistaken idea of what Soviet doctrine was has never really occurred. And uh, my hope is that someday it does. So, you know, my understanding is limited because I'm not an expert. You're an expert, and I'm I'm sure that you know most of both of our listeners are also not experts. So, uh, it's I've read many times that the, uh, this is a textbook, you know, interpretation of uh, what happened is that you know the advantages of the advance of military technology. I'm just clarifying your your response. Yes. The advances of military technology have brought us to a point where the tactical level of uh, war, you know, the, the, the commanders directly overseeing actions which they can almost visually observe, as you know, in Napoleonic war times, it's not sufficient to to cover a modern battle where a division might have its responsibility stretched out for dozens of miles. And that we need a different conceptual level for uh, for understanding these actions. Is this a misinterpretation of what the operational level of war is? Uh, slightly, not totally. Uh, that is what the Soviets were talking about, that the greater complexity of uh, modern warfare required a rethink of how these things, especially tactics across great distances, and uh, with very potent weapons, very complicated weapons, uh, needs a little more support than it did in the past. And the idea around this was called operational art. And operational art really focused on the, the planning, the synchronization, the sustaining of tactics over time and space. Uh, and the Soviets did a lot of good work on this. And what the, pro what the misinterpretation was is that this was a level between tactics and strategy. It does not appear that way in the Soviet doctrine as a level. It appears as something the staff does to make sure tactics come together and they're synchronized and that they, you know, do what they're supposed to do. Uh, they, uh, the Soviet also had command levels and some of these command levels were used the word operational, so there was a strategic operational command level, an operational strategic command level, and an operational tactics command level, and so on and so forth. So uh, some of the writers, some of the doctrine people in the U.S. saw these command levels that made sense for the structure of the Red Army, said they are talking about a new conceptual level that exists between tactics and strategy. And that's where the misinterpretation came from. That's not what they were talking about. They were talking about how they structure the Red Army in order to do tactics without making it a level. Uh, and the other point in that book is not just that the operational, uh, my book, not just that the operational level doesn't exist, but that operational art actually makes a lot of sense. And operational art is what the staff does to support tactics and strategy without being a level of its own. Uh, is something good. It's a good idea, and it's a baby that we shouldn't throw out with the bathwater when we re-examine the operational level um, in the context of the other levels. 
So operational art is actually a method for us to organize tactics. Yes, that's that's a good way of putting it. it we have things like the uh, military decision-making process uh, that the staff goes through to examine different courses of action and weigh them against the situation in the enemy. This is all operational art. It's very necessary. It's not a different level. It has to interact very closely with tactics and strategy. And uh, the the conclusion, I allude to it in the book a little, but uh, it'll be bigger in the third book on strategy. There's the idea of levels at all is problematic. Not just that the operational level doesn't exist, but looking at them as levels where you move from one and then to the other and then to the other in a very linear mechanistic way is problematic and at its core. Okay, this is, this, is a, this is a new concept to me. It's a, I'm going to have to read your book, and of course I'm going to invite you back to our show, you know, when the book is ready. Yeah. I, I do have to start that book first, so it'll be a while. <laughs> and of course, which brings us around, which brings us around uh, uh, very neatly to my next question, which is, you know... You talk about uh, this concept of levels, and specifically in this book, the concept of the operational level, about how this concept is harmful, uh, how it, you know, it might lead to flaws in our thinking in our military planning. And so I, I would just like you to explain to our audience what do you mean when you say that these uh, concepts, that this is a harmful, that it does harm to separate these levels conceptually. Uh, well, I, I'm, the major point here is that tactics and strategy have to be synchronized. Uh, you, uh, a military force is not going to achieve strategic effects and strategic objectives if the tactics aren't right, and vice versa. If the tactics can't support the strategy, then uh, you know, the, you're not going to get anywhere. And by putting this artificial conceptual layer between those two things that have to be very tightly integrated, very tightly synchronized, you're breaking that link between them. Um, so the people that are working on what they what they would call a tactical level aren't worried about strategy because they're like, no, that's there's an operational level and those people have it handled. And the people at the operational level or like the people at the strategy level have it handled. I don't have to worry about that. And all the way back down, I, the people at the strategy level or like the tactical guys and the operational guys will handle that. I don't have to worry about it. So when you've broken things, artificially broken things apart that should be in a tight relationship, you get bad outcomes. And uh, one of the examples that I use in the book, the, fir the first book and the second book is um, the United States and Iraq and Afghanistan. There's nowhere you can point to where the U.S. was defeated at tactics and achieving tactical objectives. Um, but the strategic outcome was never achieved, not even close to becoming achieved, not even close to being defined. And that led to poor outcomes. We didn't achieve our goals because we assumed that if we master the tactics and we execute tactics at the tactical level, then that will rise up to operational effects, operational objectives. 
And if we achieve enough of those, then that will automatically rise up to the strategy level and achieve strategic effects and strategic objectives. Because we look at these as levels, we just assume master one, then unlock the next one like a video game, and then unlock the next one. And it doesn't work that way in reality. And we found that out in Iraq and Afghanistan, that it doesn't work that way. And we need to re-examine the relationship. If we look at them as discrete levels, we can never examine that relationship because we've broken it by putting in this operational level. And mm, of course there are mm, some other examples. The may, maybe also something we've seen in Vietnam was, uh, you know, there's a story about the mm, kill counts, which some uh, commanders thought were very important. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that uh, the U.S. focus on attrition in terms of body counts from Vietnam onwards is really a symptom of this. We have stopped conceptualizing on how we can achieve our objectives because we have slotted them into these discrete levels that don't interact for us in practice. And if they're not interacting for us in practice, they're not interacting for us in uh, doctrine and in our concepts, we can never make them work in the real world. But there is something which I wanted to ask because it it comes up in your book. If you talk about the Soviet Union using the operational level, not really the Soviet Union, but Soviet military officers using the operational level as a sort of metaphorical space, as a sort of area where officers could discuss issues which were strategic issues, but they could pretend that they are discussing them in a non-political, in a professional way, and they could in this way escape the, you know, the, politi- the political intervention, which of course in the Soviet Union, every military issue was politicized. And I would like to ask, you know, and of course to some extent this exists in every military, there's always some political intervention in the professional decisions. There's always some angle, if you will, to the professional decisions. And can you maybe explain to us more about this idea of the operational level force as a fictional space of sorts, as a conceptual space? Yeah, I, I think uh, the the phrase safe space is really apt here. Um, for this, Especially post-Stalin's uh, purges, uh, it would make sense for, imagine yourself a Red Army Lieutenant Colonel who wants to discuss things about military issues. If you focus on operational art and you say, I'm not touching the strategy, I'm not touching the politics, I'm just down here at my own level talking about very technical scientific military things so as not to uh, interfere with the, the politicians and the strategists that are uh, very heavily uh, politicized in a totalitarian society. Um, it's safer for them. They're not going to run afoul of very powerful people that could uh, actually actually eliminate them if they made ruffle too many feathers. Uh, where that 
occurs in the U.S. system is less about avoiding the ire of politicians and high-level officials and more about avoiding grappling with failures. Um, the operational level entered U.S. military doctrine right after the Vietnam War, uh, which was you know, a loss, and it became a very easy, safe space for military officers to say, we didn't lose the war, the politicians did. We won the war at the operational level. They just lost it at the political and strategic level. And by removing that responsibility from themselves, now they're not really grappling with their role in the war, how they can do better next time, um, because it's emotionally safer for them. Uh, and this because it still exists in U.S. doctrine now, then that is also an option for those of us who participated in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I've heard from students at, uh, at the command and staff war colleges and U.S. military PME schools that this is already happening. That the, the message they are getting from the the professional military education system is that Iraq and Afghanistan were won at the operational level, just not at the strategic level. So we're already repeating the, the post-Vietnam process of taking the burden of failure off ourselves and pushing it onto the politicians because it's easier than having to grapple with uh, participating in a failure. Uh, and, you know, one of the symptoms of this is the phrase you hear very often in the U.S. Uh, commentariat sphere, the idea of best military advice. They, that is our role as, or the, the role of military officers is to provide the politicians with best military advice and what they do with it is whatever they do with it and then it's not our responsibility. But if we are using the operational level as a safe space to not think about politics, not think about the inherent political nature of strategy, we are not providing best military advice. Um, it can't, it's a paradoxical term. If, it, if the best military advice is stripped free of politics, like the, it stays at the operational level, it's useless advice. It's not good advice. It's poor military advice because it's not taking into account the inherent political nature of strategy. So I think I didn't uh, put that in the book. Uh, because it was something I noticed afterwards, but I think that's a symptom of what you talk about, um, the harmful effects of the operational level and its use into safe space to avoid difficult and, uh, unpleasant, uh, thought and conclusions. Oh, and, uh, no, there are just a, just the two follow-up questions I have before we move to the final question. But the two, but the first one is: it seems to me that you know, in in the in Western countries, of course, there is always the attempt. Uh, the, um, I would I would say the you know the in a broad sense, a constitutional attempt to try and make sure that the military doesn't make political decisions that is divorced from politics. 
And in the, of course, in the totalitarian regime, the military is hyper-politicized, yes. Uh, every choice you may, you know, in a, in, a, in a country like the Soviet Union, every choice about uh, procuring a weapon system or the training of the soldiers is always somehow related to the political doctrine of the Communist Party. And it seems to have gotten to the same result. These two, you know, diametrically opposed policies have gotten to the same result where you have uh, senior officers who don't want to, uh, uh, want to d- d- divorce their thinking from politics as much as they can, whether it is to avoid being too political or because they want to avoid uh, political censorship either way. Yes, it's really curious at how um, the, these two, yeah, as you said, very truly diametrically opposed uh, philosophical outlooks on the world ended up in the same spot. Uh, I don't think that was intentional, uh, but I think it's something we should re-examine. Uh, I think, obviously, the uh, Western countries that keep uh, political power out of the hands of the military, uh, it, that is very important and something we should definitely preserve. Um my, I think my point is more that generals shouldn't have political power, certainly, uh, but they do have to take into account uh, the political nature of war. And if they are not taking into that into account, if they are basically stripping their conceptual view of uh, war of its politics, there's no way they can get to good military advice. They can't get there because... It's, it's a denial of the very nature of war as a social phenomenon. Uh, and if it is incumbent on generals, I think everyone, but, you know, especially generals because of the immense power that they wield and the influence they wield on po- politicians um, to uh, become experts in war as a phenomenon. They are going to direct it in practice. Uh, if war comes, they are going to... Uh, make decisions that affect thousands of lives, uh, the direction of their entire society. So uh, it is part of their duty to understand war as it is, not how they would like it to be stripped of politics and the strategic context. And the second question which I would like to ask, it diverges a bit from our topic, but uh, so I have... Uh, read um, probably not as much as you but I have read quite a few books about um, America's wars and there is often the idea especially in recent when I'm talking about recent top, uh, recent conflicts where the US military is um, described often as being fairly competent as you know training the troops and uh, supplying them and all of the technical matters of uh, waging and administering a war but that's the uh, Failure, uh, the, the failures, were, you know, the defeats which America sometimes suffers, and they have to do more. Was uh, it's often said that it's, uh, the, the, it's due to misunderstandings by American policymakers who have not fully understood the nature of the societies which they're engaging with or as some other issue. And you reject this. You suggest that the military sh- should also take responsibility of some kind for these problems yes uh well i i don't i don't reject the idea that u.s policymakers and politicians have a played a big role in why the some of these conflicts have become failures i'm not alleviating them of responsibility 
Uh, my greater point is that the, especially the upper levels of the military and the military itself also is responsible for that. Um, you could look at Iraq and how much U.S. policy policymakers followed military advice. The military recommended uh, the invasion of Iraq. They recommended the surge. They recommended counterinsurgency, and all of these things failed, and yet. Now the military is coming back and saying, well, it was really the political and the strategic policy makers that failed. But uh, we're ignoring the fact that all of the best military advice provided by the U.S. military also failed. Uh, So I'm I'm not trying to place the blame on one group or another. I'm trying to spread it out amongst uh, everyone that participated, you might say. Uh, Yeah. I, I've heard a phrase lately, I don't know where it came from, but that the U.S. Mili- the U.S. does not lose wars, it loses interest. Uh, and, you know, that phrase kind of implies that we can't be beaten, but we can fail, and we've seen it, I would argue, way too often recently, that the U.S. military has failed, and those failures have a lot of harmful effects on a lot of people, not to mention the civilians in the the uh the countries where we're operating um but second third order effects across entire regions sometimes uh they come about because of u.s failures not not to mention that you know an immense amount of taxpayer resources were spent on these wars and then we lose interest and then just leave as if uh we weren't we weren't really beating we're just we just don't want to do this anymore uh, I think that's as much of a problem as defeat is, and we should start to wrap our heads around what we got wrong instead of just moving on to the next thing, great power competition, and looking at the, the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation. Uh, there there needs to be a real effort at soul-searching. Hey, why we spent all these resources, why we caused all this damage to societies and regions, and then just left and stopped worrying about it i think uh i think we've got to figure out a way as a as a u.s society to come to terms with that and of course cloud cloud would point out you know war war isn't a sport yes it's not about whose whose soldiers were better, um, you know, who shot down more uh, more fighter jets, uh, as the case may be. Well, you know, the, the the U.S. Air Force has a very impressive kill to loss ratio. Well, the U.S. Marines are very competent and very brave, but one of the ways in which you can uh, win a war, you know, per Clausewitz, per is. Uh, if if there's two and Clausewitz goes into this in his book, if there are two nations and one of them is just more dedicated to victories, they're fighting over something which means a lot more to them, that they might, you know, if the opponent gets tired, gets bored, gets tired and leaves, then you know, to some extent, this is still your victories or defeat. I'm sure that if you talk to somebody from uh, from uh, Vietnam. They will not uh, will not agree with the interpretation that uh, Vietnam did not win the war, as far as they're concerned. Yes, it's a great part, and it's a it's a big part of their national identity that they 
thought and you know won this war against a country which they perceived to be this colonialist invader. And from this, you know, so, so I, I think that to some extent, talking about whether the military did did well, you know, in the specific, we won so and so many, we we won so and so many fights, and then just and then we got bored. Yes, it's um, still a defeat. Yes, yes, uh, and it's great that you bring it around uh, back to Clausewitz because uh, this book is very much an extension of Clausewitz philosophy, uh, and. You know, it's it, uh, defeat. Defeats are hard. Failures are hard, and they are hard to deal with on an emotional level. And I mean, especially Americans, we like to pretend that we're not emotional about these things, uh, but we are. And it's an emotional decision to focus on the operational level and winning there because it feels better than thinking about the fact that we failed strategically. Uh, it's an emotional decision to focus on these things in Iraq and Afghanistan to be like, well, we the military fought well. Um, so we're going to focus on that and we're not going to go through the emotional burden of thinking about failures of strategy and policy. Uh, Clausewitz would push back on this very passionately. Uh, he defined war in part as the realm of passion and enmity. He would say that any attempts to strip war of that passion and that enmity that comes across in the conflict uh, is just a denial of reality. And once you've denied reality, you can't get to any logical, reliable conclusion. Um, and and that that's kind of my point with the operational level too. Uh, it, he would say, no, you cannot strip the politics out of this. The politics pervades everything about war. Uh, that's what set him apart from other theorists, uh, other theorists before him said war is a political phenomenon. Uh, what made Clausewitz different is he said that it's political all the way down. Every aspect of it is affected by politics, international and domestic. And as soon as we start getting away from that, we it's going to lead to failure. And of course, the phrase is, the phrase is you can evade reality, but you, you can't evade the consequences of evading reality. Yeah, that's a, that's a good turn of phrase. I think he would agree with that. And I would like to come back to also another question, which is traditional, which is traditional, you know, for the show. Can you tell me what books you are reading right now? Maybe there is something you'd like to recommend or just tell us about your book journey, so to speak. Uh, yeah, uh, so I am reading a lot of Clausewitz right now for a project, uh, but I recently finished Non-State Warfare by Stephen Biddle. Uh, if you're familiar with Stephen Biddle, he wrote uh, the book Military Power uh, that defines what he calls the modern system of how uh, warfare works in our age, uh, in our age being World War II, post-World War II, um, inclusive of World War II. Uh, mil military power is just one of the best examples of military analysis, uh, which I do for a living, um, out there. Uh, I recommend it to everybody. And, um, so he is the book that I recently read non-state warfare is, uh, not a sequel to it. Uh, but his next book that he worked on published, uh, and the thesis of that book is that there is no difference between at 
what we call conventional warfare and irregular warfare that a lot of people assume these two uh, ways of waging war are based on materialist uh, issues such as the weapons they have available or tribal issues such as they are not a developed society so they uh, focus on tribal warfare and things like that he takes both of those theses on uh, disagrees with both of them comes up with his own uh, that it is really the internal domestic politics of the political actor that determines how they will fight uh, and that by looking at these two different by splitting warfare into two different ideas of conventional war and irregular war we're doing ourselves a disservice because that's not really how it works in practice it's always intermingled it's always intermixed and the uh, the militaries that can better manage that mix are going to be more successful than the ones that try to focus on conventional or focus on irregular. Uh, so it's a really important book, um, especially in the U.S. because the U.S. doctrine at the joint and service levels splits war into conventional and irregular warfare. And uh, his analysis pretty much revealed that that's a bad idea. Uh, that's not how things work in practice and it should be relooked. Uh, so I'm, I'm not as good as an analyst as him. Um, so I'm happy to admit because I think he's probably the best out there. Uh, but he is working on a, uh, like me trying to, uh, uh, repudiate some of the bad ideas that remain stuck in our doctrine. So I think that's an important book for people to read. Thank you for being with us today, Brett. I'm so some of the stuff which you've said, all the things which you've said are really enlightening to me. I was really happy to have you on our show again. And when you finish your next book, pl please do come back to us. We would be happy to have you here again. All right. I absolutely will. Looking forward to it. <laughs>